following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Sometimes our children will be playing very peacefully at a game, and suddenly there's a shout. That's not right. You cheated. No, I didn't. You're wrong. And suddenly there's this clamoring, this shouting back and forth. And when that happens, mom and dad have to go into the room. How do they solve this issue? Well, they must sit you down and let each of you tell your side of the story. And then they will help you understand who was right and who was wrong. There being an umpire in that situation. It's the same tactic that will be used in, in marriage, discipleship, or counseling. Uh, the counselor will sit the couple down and will hear them out and will begin to help them see where each one uh, is wrong. And, and the purpose of this is to bring reconciliation. That's the purpose of a mediator. And that is the thing that Job is longing for now in the end of this ninth chapter. In the first two-thirds of the chapter, Job has very carefully answered the twofold accusation of his counselors that he is slandering God in his self-defense, and he is uh, are slandering God of injustice and wrong in defending himself. And he has shown that he respects the justice of God. In fact, he's moved beyond Bildad, you remember from last Sunday evening, and that is he recognizes there's nothing that he could do to commend himself to God. He is a sinner saved by grace. He repents of that sin that's yet within him. But now in this last third, as Job has declared the justice of God, he goes on to begin wrestling with the nature of that justice. He firmly believes, as I trust each of you, believes that God is just. But what's the nature of that justice? And how then can we come to a God who is just and perfect and sovereign in his justice? See, this is the question that Job is answering here in verses 22 to 25. And I want to show you that because God is sovereign in judgment and his ways often misunderstood by us, we need a mediator. Because God is sovereign, His justice, His ways are often misunderstood by us and by man in general. We need a mediator. So we'll look at the sovereignty of God's justice, the misunderstanding of God's justice, and then the need of a mediator. Well, Job begins asserting uh, the sovereignty of God's justice. He's, he's asserted the justice of God now he wants to show the justice of God is not as his friends understand it. No, God is sovereign in justice and will afflict equally the righteous and the wicked. And so he says in verses uh, 22 to 24, Is it not all one? Therefore I say he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. If the scourge kills suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. The earth is given to the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of his judges. If not he, then who? 
Job asserts three things here about the sovereignty of God in the exercise of justice. In the first place, the innocent, the relatively innocent, stand alongside the wicked under judgmental acts of God, under these acts of affliction. He says that there's one thing, one thing. He said, I've shown you how I agree with you. I've shown you how I'm not slandering God. In fact, I understand justice better than you, but there's one thing about justice that you do not understand, and that is that the exercise of God's justice is not a sign of punishment. God's judgment is doled out on the innocent as well as the wicked. He destroys the guiltless. Not that he thinks any man is without guilt. He's already asserted that in the previous section. Uh, but the one who is living uh, in faith, walking with God, he destroys that one and the wicked. In other words, the, the judgmental acts of God can fall from our perspective indiscriminately. Righteous people have perished in God's judging acts. This is what our Savior says, for example, in Luke chapter 13. Not all who died, um, the hands of Pilate or at the fallen tower at Siloam, were necessarily wicked. We know that good King Josiah was killed in battle, and wicked King Ahab was killed in battle. That from a certain perspective, God is indiscriminate when he doles out his acts of judgment because he's sovereign in doing them. He expands on that uh, by telling us that if the scourge kills suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. Uh, as in his own case, suddenly the, the, uh, the scourge, the whip of God, has come uh, upon him. And uh, he says when God does that, when he kills suddenly, in very strange words, he mocks the despair of the innocent. Now, I've wrestled long with these words. Many of the commentators that I most respect say that this is a figure of speech, and the mocking here has to do with God's laughing at the outcome that he knows he's going to accomplish. Matthew Henry gave a little verse to summarize this point of view. Against the just, the Almighty's arrow fly, for he delights the innocent to try to show their constant and their godlike minds, not by affliction broken, but refined. And we agree with that. We know that's truth. Uh, we fully recognize that uh, God tries us by afflictions, and because he knows he has a good purpose for us in our afflictions, there's a sense that he's smiling, a smile on what he knows he's going to accomplish. And, and he tells us then um, to rejoice in all of the afflictions that fall upon us. But the more I've thought about this verse in terms of this section and chapter 10, I'm beginning to think that Job is a bit cynical now. That yes, he's going to assert the sovereign justice of God, but is there some enmity? Is there some undue fierceness in this sudden judgment that's come upon a man like himself. Is God so even-handed uh, that he is personally removed or impersonal in the distribution of this justice? I think that's where Job is going. So his first argument for the sovereignty of God's justice in verses 22 and 23, in fact, part of that not only uh, does the... Um, 
do they suffer together, but often it's the wicked who, who are the agents of God's judgment as well. So it was the Sabians and the Chaldeans that they came against him, and through them God inflicted his acts of justice or judgment. Secondly, in the first part of verse 24, he says that actually God has given the earth into the hand of the wicked. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. It's not just that God is apparently indiscriminate in the exercises of justice or judgment. In fact, the wicked have the upper hand. That is, as he looked around him and he sees a world that is controlled by the wicked. And, and we recognize the same thing today, don't we? The world is controlled by, by the wicked. Now, they are in the driver's seat, not the righteous. Think about the people that Forbes magazine would say are the 10 richest men in America. Does not one of them even give evidence of being a son of God, a daughter of God? Are near them this morning uh, uh, at corporate worship, uh, thanking God for his goodness to them? There's no public evidence to that point. But the word's been given to them. Great wealth has been heaped upon them by God in his sovereign judgment. He has given uh, the, the earth in its fullness in these days over to the hand of the wicked. And we see it in an increasing capacity, don't we, in our own country. And then the third line of arguing that he uses here to show that God is sovereign in his judgment is that the, the wicked judge unjustly. The last two parts of verse 24, he covers the faces of its judges. And don't you love this? If not, then who is the literal Hebrew? Now, the middle verse is simply reminding us that either the judges blind themselves and accept bribes and and honor their friends, and there's no good judgment. Or in fact, God himself blinds them so that they exercise unfair judgment. But whatever, again, not only is the, the, the earth given over uh, to uh, the wicked in its fullness at these days, but uh, rule and judgment, unjust rule and judgment has been given over to them uh, as well. And we see that in so many ways in our, our own time. Um, when Photographers or bakers who refuse to uh, compromise their convictions with respect to uh, making um, wedding cakes or doing photographs for uh, a sodomite wedding uh, are taken to court and, and found guilty. Where people are losing jobs or can't get jobs because they would refuse to assert the heinousness of such activity or transgenderism. And that's where our courts are today, right? In, in great amount. Uh, and around the world. It's worse in Canada, and it's worse in Europe than it is here. And so uh, what Job is proving here is, is, is the fact that we understand God is sovereign. And notice how he puts it in the very end, with this terseness, if not, then who? What a question. What a question. Because if God is not the one exercising sovereignty in, this, in these acts, who's in control? You see the great comfort in the sovereignty of God? We discussed this this week in my uh, introductory foreign theology class and got a delightful older uh, uh, pastor, Baptist pastor in there, and he was wrestling with this. He said, well, you know, but if we tell them that this is of God, what comfort is that? And I said, if we tell them 
It's not of God. What comfort is that? You want to live in a world where God's not in control, where Satan or our chance itself runs amok? Oh, what a, what a delightful comfort it is to you and me to know that um, if not he whom, God is sovereign. God has foreordained all that comes to pass. Rest there. Yes, we recognize that what appears to be an indiscriminate exercise of judgment, often on God's behalf, but we recognize that he's sovereign in this judgment. But recognizing the sovereignty of judgment, Job now begins to uh, uh, misunderstand the application of God's judgment. In verses 25 to uh, 31, in verses 25 and 26, he uses his own experience to to show uh, that there is simply an inscrutability here. Uh, And how am I going to work this out? Um, Beautiful figures. Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They slip by like reed boats, like an eagle that swoops on its prey. I've spoken in the past about the, the beautiful rhetorical devices that we have in this piece of Scripture. And what three more beautiful, profound ways to describe the speed of life. He moves from the slowest to the fastest. He starts with a, a runner or a courier. Now my days are swifter than a runner. And throughout ancient times, runners and horse riders, uh, some runners in some countries are supposed to run as fast as horses, uh, were a sign of swiftness. And in our own land, uh, we think of the Pony Express, which was the way of quickly getting mail across the the wilderness of the West. We have our own figure of speech today, do something post-haste, and that word post comes from this idea of rapid. So the runner, the courier, uh, the rider is a a sign of great speed. But even faster than the runner is this boat made of reeds that is just slipping by. A light boat driven uh, in the current and, and, and by the wind, and, and before you see it, it's gone down the river. But even faster than both is that great eagle who suddenly finds a rabbit in the field and faster than a bullet, faster than Superman, poof, he's down and he grabs hold of his prey. Two figures in ascending order, three figures in ascending order, to describe what? The brevity of life. And notice how Job applies it. My days are swift than a runner. Verse 25, they flee away. They see no good. Now you remember, these men have told him, now look, Job, if you'll just clean up your act, if you'll come back to God, then uh, your, your, your later days will be better than the first days. And you'll just have this, uh, this great life of, of peace and prosperity. He says, look, men, my best days are behind me. My life is quickly uh, pushing to the end, and there's no time left for good. I thought about the words of that Beatles song. Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. Now it looks as though they are here to stay. But Job is saying, there's no hope for me. There's no time that God's going to restore me. 
No, my life is fleeting on. Now, though Job misapplies this, he's become, becoming cynical as he thinks this way. Um, it's a very important point to realize is that our lives are moving very quickly. And, and one lesson from that, it's a lesson Calvin points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Don't cling to your possessions with a, a death grip. Hold to them like a hot potato. Tenderly. Tenaci- not tenaciously, just, just the opposite. Um, recognize that God could and may take them away tomorrow. And that your real happiness is not in them. Boys and girls, where's your real happiness today? Is it in your toys or, or your house or anything else? It must be in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And that's where all of us must rest for our real happiness. But a second lesson that comes from what Job says here is indeed the quickness of life, the fleetingness of time. And so because of that, the scripture tells us in Psalm 90:12 and Ephesians 5 and 16 to redeem the time, make the best use of time. At the end of each day, scan the day and ask the question, have I sought to live for God's glory today in all that I did? I understand, that doesn't mean you don't play. You don't do other things uh, besides sing or worship or praise God. But whatever you do, Paul says, you do it for the glory of God. And you want to do it every day of your life. And you don't postpone the good. Again, boys and girls, he says to you, remember the Creator when? In the days of your youth, because life is quickly going to a point where you'll not be able to remember him. And your youth is the time to remember God, not to postpone making covenant with him and walking with him in faith and obedience, because time is moving on so swiftly. So Job recognizes that in the sovereignty of God, he's, he's just in all that he does, but he's, he's saying, there's no hope for me. He's quit looking at God as he ought to, as the one who's in control and could restore him if it was his will. He simply come to the conclusion, this is the end of it. Regardless of your pain and trial, don't ever reach that conclusion of cynicism. This is the end. Don't ever come uh, to the point of where Job now is in the next section, where he will say in verse 27, And 28, though I say, I will forget my complaint. I'll leave off my sad countenance and be cheerful. I'm afraid of all my pains. I know that you will not acquit me. Well, his friends have told him to quit complaining and to uh, clean up his act and look to God. And he says, I, I try to forget I try to change my countenance, and, and the word in the Hebrew, the figure is the, my face. And one writer says, two things you can never disguise on your face, and that is uh, sadness and anger. He's tried to make his countenance right. He's tried to put on a smiley face and be cheerful. He says it's no good because he's afraid. He's afraid of all of his pains. Now, it's not, remember now, it's not just the physical pains. It's, in fact, that's the least of Job's problems now. It's the pain of the black veil between God and him. 
It's the pain of the dread and terror of God that's come over him. It's the pain of a man that once knew God as friend and now is beginning to think of God as enemy. And he says, how in the world can I be cheerful if God is my enemy? And that also is an important insight. Now, Job's wrong. God's not his enemy. But if God is your enemy today, you can put all the happy face you want to. If God's your enemy, then there's no hope for you and yourself. If God is your enemy, if you do not rest in Christ Jesus, he will destroy you with a perfect justice. He will do what Job says. He will not acquit you. Now, when Job uses the language, though, he's not talking about the righteousness of justification and pardon. He's talking about personal acquittal. That's his problem. Always keep that in mind as you read this type of language. These people were accusing him of being wicked because he was suffering. He says, look, all people suffer. God's sovereign in this. No, God's not going to restore me, and he's not going to acquit me. He's come to the conclusion, sadly, that God would not vindicate him against the charges of these men. In other words, God was not going to take away the dark afflictions, the physical things in his life. God was not going to restore him in his conscience to his favor. There's going to be no public acquittal of Job. That's where he's come. Because the only way he'd be acquitted in the sight of those men is for God to remove his hand. And Job's convinced that God's not going to remove his hand from him. In fact, he goes on to say, God is actually going to make it worse. Verse 28, I am accounted wicked by these men, godly men, and they've accounted Job as wicked. So why should I toil in vain? It's vain, he says, for me to try to vindicate myself. You tell me, clean up my act and do good. Well, he says in verse 30, if I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye or soap... You, talking to God, would plunge me into the pit, and my own clothes would abhor me. He's simply saying that God is not going to lift his hand. If ceremonially he could do everything, if he cleaned up his act externally the way they wanted, and the two figures here is, you know, to, to uh, wash himself with snow water, which was simply a figure for the purest of water, or, or wash his hands with lye, strong soap, um, it would be vain. In fact, God would continue to leave him in this place of dark judgment and pain and sorrow and physical and spiritual affliction. It would be so bad, it's like being plunged into a filthy pit, into a cesspit. His own clothes would abhor him. It's a figure to show that, that there would be nothing about him at all. It would be pleasant. Now, you see, he, well, his friends have misapplied God's judgment. We keep seeing that. They've kept saying that he's being judged because he's wicked, and if he just cleans up his act, it'll be fine. Um, Job has shown that, no, God's judgment is sovereign, but in fact, even if I cleaned up my act, he, well, I tried to, he wouldn't let me. Because for some reason, he has set his face against me. That's the real problem with Job, is, is he looks at God's, Sovereign judgment. God has set his face against me. Job's thinking God's become his enemy. These are the words of which he'll have to repent. Now, now we understand in frailty. 
how those who are deeply hurting will, will speak wrongly about God, will think wrongly about God. And when they come back to a place of equilibrium, they'll, they'll be okay, and that might be the case with you. Perhaps even as you see here today, your, your conscience bothers you because at some dark time you, you had evil thoughts about God. And, um, on the one hand, that's normal, you understand. Normal for us who are weak sinners. God understands. And you come to your senses and you confess, God pardons you. God pardons you. But also, in Job's language. This is what the wisdom literature does. We get an insight into the intense suffering of our Savior. You see, he was exactly in this situation that is described by Job, that uh, he could not do anything to cause his enemies to think that he was righteous. Because as he obeyed God and did what he was supposed to, they called him a, a glutton, a, a friend of sinners, a blasphemer, because he called himself uh, the son of God. Whatever way he went, uh, he performed miracles. They knew it, and they turned that into, well, you're working under the power of Beelzebub. He couldn't do a thing. And God did not lift a finger, so to speak, in the humiliation of our Savior for public exoneration. In fact, it comes to the point of the cross, as we read of, of his hanging there. Life so quickly has sped away. He's hanging on the cross. Here's his enemies. You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. You know, that was, that was probably the, one of the harshest, most difficult temptations. Because that's what he wanted, isn't it? He wanted them to believe in him. And Satan is offering this temptation. You know, just come down. Come down. We'll believe in you. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. As he hang there suspended between heaven and earth under the curse and wrath of God, mocked by men, justly punished by God because our sins were imputed to him. He's going through exactly what Job thought he was suffering. But in the anguish of Job, we understand then the intensity of the suffering of our Savior, who did this voluntarily, that he might redeem us from our sins. And so God's judgment is sovereign. But because it's sovereign and sometimes it's clothed then in, in blackness and apparent disparity, um, we, we reach wrong conclusions about God's judgment. So we need, we need something else. And what Job says he needed was a go-between, a mediator. So uh, in verses uh, 32 to 35, for He's not a man, as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. There's no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Let him remove his rod from me. Let not dread of him terrify me. 
Then I would speak and not fear him, for I am not like that in myself. As he understands the sovereignty of God's judgment, he surely understands that God's not a man as he is. He's already said that there's no contending with God in the field of battle. There's no coming to court with God. And he basically is repeating that because God's not a man. Job wants answers. Job wants to explain himself to God. He wants to, to lay out his case. He, he wants to say, look, God, you know that as my conscience declares, though I'm a sinner saved by grace, that I've walked before you, that I am a blameless and righteous man. I, I turn away from sin. Oh, God, let me come to you. Let me explain my And God, explain yourself to me. But what does he say? There's no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Uh, the figure is of one stepping between uh, the two combatants back to our children who are arguing, or the married couple in conflict when the mediator comes between them and begins to seek reconciliation. Now, obviously, there's no bad, no evil in God. Uh, but the figure is the need of someone to explain Job to God and God to Job. Now, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the word mediator is used here for umpire. And in fact, the Septuagint actually makes this a wish. And I think this is the right direction. Oh, that there were a mediator between God he will grow in his faith and he will recognize as uh, the Spirit deals with him that God has and will provide such a mediator. Now he's simply recognizing that nothing can take away the, the dark sovereignty, the inscrutability of God's judgment. There's, there's, there's nothing. He's, he says that, um, let him remove his rod. Take away the heaviness, not just of the, the physical, but the dark Iron curtain, the blackness, the dread of God that terrifies me. Job once knew him uh, as a kind father, walked with him in compassion or a comfort and communion. And now the rod is upon him. The heaviness of God's hand is upon him. And the dread of God terrifies him. He said if God removed that, he could speak and not fear him. If suddenly the veil would be lifted and, and God would again appear to him in, in the form of a friend, then he wouldn't be afraid. He could, he could make his case to God. But, and the better translation in the ESV is for, I'm not like that in myself. I can't do it. There's no way. Here he's just establishing the need of the mediator. There's no way that he's going to come to God. There's nothing in himself that allows him to come, uh, come to God and to get this acquittal, this exoneration that he so much longs for. He needs uh, a mediator. He needs one to stand between him and God. And so what I've sought to show you is that because God is sovereign in exercises of judgment, often misunderstood that we must have a mediator. We must have an explainer and 
an access granter. And of course, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given, now the public testimony given at the proper time. This is the answer to Job's request. The mediator is given, and it's at the proper time that the public testimony is given at God's time. We're going to sing in a moment uh, from this hymn, O Lord, how shall I meet you? Rejoice that you sad-hearted, rejoice then you sad-hearted who sit in deepest gloom, who mourn for joys departed and tremble at your doom. Despair not, he is near you. Yea, he's standing at the door. Who best can help and cheer you and bid you weep? Oh, my friends, bless the name of God that you know the mediator. Notice Paul's emphasis, the man Christ Jesus. He does this so often. Yes, he's the God-man. But what Paul is comforting us with here, that he is like us. God is not like us. We are not like him. But he took our nature in the incarnation so that he could be like us. He can be our man in heaven. Our man between us and God. Our mediator who knows the fullness of all of our frailty. Can identify with us and all of our weakness and sorrow. He's the one who takes hold of us with great sympathy. He brings us to the Father. Because he's the mediator. He's made the access sure and perfect. Yes, he has come to explain the Father to us. And so, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the perfect revealer of the Father. And so, he's come then also to make clear to us now the ways of God, which he does through his word. Job lived in such spiritual darkness because he had not scripture. But God's given you scripture. God's told you so much about himself in his word. Now, he's not going to answer all of your questions. Not until... Glory, maybe you won't answer him then because you won't be concerned. But um, he tells you enough. But the big thing he tells you is that he is your father who gave his only begotten son. And so the son explains the father to us through scripture. The son brings us to the father through his perfect obedience, death, and resurrection. And the son enables us to come boldly into the presence of the father. We're no longer kept out of the court of God. We may now come and speak freely to God. And this is what prayer then is, you understand. Prayer is coming because of our mediator. And you may express in prayer your hurts. And you may ask God the questions. And you may, in a humble manner, utter your complaints because now the access is free. And you may come. Do come, my dear friends. Come to your Lord. Rest in him. Be daily in his presence in prayer and communion. We have a mediator. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.